Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Episode 231 of The Bowery Boys. The Stonewall Riots Revisited Hey, it's the Bowery Boys Hey Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners Join us for as little as a dollar a month By visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys This is Greg Young And this is Tom Myers You know, we've been reflecting upon our 10 years together, Tom We've been recording for 10 years Years Ten now. years yes. of recording. That's why we're at episode 231. <laughs> and we were chatting about the endlessly beautiful subject of New York City history, realizing that some subjects that we've spoken about really don't change that much, especially from the moment that we first recorded them. They're kind of trapped in amber, mm-hmm. while other topics have changed drastically from the time we first spoke about them here on the show. Right. I think, in fact, that is the beauty of history. That's the beauty of our subject, New York City history, that it's a living thing. Even those topics, I would wager, Greg, that you think are trapped in amber, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe there is another way to explore them, or maybe they have even changed a bit. And it's for that reason, this June, that we are rewinding and revisiting our Stonewall show from 2008. The Stonewall Riots were an altercation which occurred in late June of 1969 between the police and the patrons of a West Village gay bar. And this clash then inspired more peaceful gatherings outside the bar on Christopher Street and in the park across the street from the bar in the days and weeks after those initial riots. And those events essentially ignited the gay liberation movement in the United States. Tom, not only did we record that in 2008, we recorded that in May of 2008, so over nine years ago. That is a long time ago, Greg. Just to put that in perspective, in May of 2008, George W. Bush was still president of the United States. Mm Mm-hmm. And in terms of today's show, same-sex marriage was legal in only two states in the United States, Massachusetts and California. Although that same year, November of 2008, Proposition 8 would go into effect, effectively banning gay marriage in California temporarily. Michael Bloomberg was the mayor of New York City back in the spring of 2008. Right. And you and I were both still living on the Lower East Side. So things have indeed changed in so many ways and in our lives and national politics and even in the way that you and I approach the subject of Stonewall. Over the past nine years, there have been cultural shifts in the way that people think 
of the LGBT community through legislation and judicial action, which has elevated those issues to the mainstream consciousness. So we'd like to replay that original episode on the Stonewall riots. That was episode 48. And we want you to listen to it with the past nine years in mind. It's still a really good show overall, although it's a little... It's got some issues. (laughs) It's it's badly edited, which we're going to hopefully correct for you here. The tone might strike you as a little odd. Mm -hmm. We will warn you about now. Wait, let me stop you there. Why do you find the tone a bit strange today? Well, I think our point was to characterize Stonewall, to consider it alongside other moments that we had talked about in the show up to that time, other historical moments, Mm -hmm. knowing that in 2008, many listeners had never even heard of the Stonewall riots. So thus, we have a little bit of a tone of like, oh, this is just another moment in history, la-di-da, which I think feels a little cavalier today. Okay, so the modern listener should be aware of that as we replay that. Also be aware of the fact that we did edit this at the time in a, in a way that was a bit breathless. So at some point, you might just want to say, for the love of God, guys, <laughs> breathe as you're listening to the show. And then also, you know, there is the use of the word transvestite in the show. We we say it many times in talking about bar patrons who were men dressed in female clothing. It does strike us a bit odd, uh, the way that we were using that term. It's technically correct in terms of its meaning, but in recent years, in the past nine years, it is viewed upon by some as kind of a slur against the transgender community. So we wanted to preface by that, and also to say that we're not just doing a rerun here. After listening to our younger selves Mm -hmm. expand upon this topic, we've actually got more to say. We've got more to talk about on this subject. We kind of left it at a certain point that we want to continue talking about it. Well, because there were some notable events um, and topics that had been left out of the show that we would like to include now. And then there's also nine years of history that takes place in and outside and around the Stonewall that must be addressed as well. So we'll talk about all of those things at the end of the show. So join us now as we rally together and revisit the Stonewall riots of the summer of 69. I think that because we're not talking about Grand Central Station, we're talking about a gay bar in the West Village that maybe some of our listeners aren't too familiar with. A hole in the wall. I mean, basically. A hole in the wall. Um, Why don't you give us a little orientation? Well, of course. The the Stonewall Bar is a a gay and lesbian bar, two floors. There's the, The current incarnation of it is quite different than the one that we are about to discuss. It's at 53 Christopher Street, West 4th Street, and Waverly Place in Greenwich Village. Now, West Village, yeah. West Village is a spider web of streets, so you're really going to have to look at a map if you want to go find it. It's across from this place called Christopher Park, and also next to that is Sheridan Square. People confuse the two, but there's... Right, I think I always call Christopher Park Sheridan Square, And right? the reason you do that is because standing in Christopher Park is a statue of Philip Sheridan. 
the Civil War hero. <laughs> as a matter of fact, because of his presence there, people are sometimes mistake Stonewall as being named after Stonewall Jackson, another Civil War hero. Uh. But in fact, Christopher Park is right in front of Stonewall, and Sheridan Square is actually a place you can't even walk anymore. It's a garden. It's a fenced-in garden. Stonewall has been there for many, many, many decades before that, and the neighborhood is going through a lot of different changes. Back us up a little bit to the neighborhood's origin. Back to, say, the Dutch village of New Amsterdam? Does that, <laughs> does that work for you? If, it, if that's where we need to go? Well, back in the day, the village and the West Village, that whole area, unsurprisingly, was farmland, of course, and it was outside the village of New Amsterdam and then of New York. It was a place, actually, during the yellow fever epidemic in 1791 and 1805, New Yorkers who were down at the they tip of Manhattan. They there, right? Right. They were fleeing from New York City and going to some distant country land, otherwise known as the West Village. Yes. Now, the streets, as anybody who's familiar with the city knows, the streets are kind of a mess. I mean, we're so used to the grid plan. I've lived here for, I mean, almost 15 years, and I still get lost in the West Village. I mean, it's... uh, It's it's, part of the charm. Yeah. (laughs) You could say that they follow their own logic, and in a way they do, because they were based on the original footpaths that the Indians and early farmers used. And once the villagers started putting in these streets, they wanted to preserve these footpaths. So that's why you wind up with some some kind of crazy streets. Now, Christopher Street is the, the longest and the oldest street in the village. And there are other you know, streets as well, like Gay Streets, mm-hmm. which people buy photographs of on Broadway. Though know? it's not named for gay people. It's named for a man named Gay. Yes. Now, in 1930, a place opened... In a former stable at 51 and 53rd Christopher Street called Bonnie's Stonewall. This was a tea room, and it was notorious for being associated with a book that was a smash that year, a lesbian love story that came out called The Stonewall. Oh, really? So Bonnie's Stonewall. By the 1960s, it was simply called The Stonewall Inn. Now that you've set up where the stone wall is, let me set up what it's like to be a gay person and that in that period of time. There's a constant fear of violence, even if you're walking down the street and you do something that reminds people that you might be gay. The West Village was the centerpiece of gay and lesbian activity. A lot of gay homeless youths at this time, people running away from home, and they heard about West Village, and this is where they you know, wanted to go and hang out and meet friends. But they had few places to congregate outside of the bar scene. Um, and there were, of course, public places like parks where they would linger for more sexual behavior. But bar scenes were basically the social scene. Unfortunately, you could be the victim of police entrapment if you went to a gay bar at this particular time. Right, because I was going to ask, were gay bars legal? Believe it or not, they weren't technically legal. It wasn't even legal to serve homosexuals drinks in a bar. Now, this wasn't. This is maybe kind of a lack Think of all the money they lost. <laughs> Little did they know. But there were some gay bars that were just sort of like under the table. They weren't being, these particular laws weren't being enforced. But another way to, to get arrests was police entrapment, where policemen would actually dis- act like gay men, go into these bars, pick somebody up, and then, of course, the moment that the other person you know, started coming on to them in some way, then they could arrest them. And when you say coming on to them, it could be as simple as talking to them. Yeah, it could just be like a friendly friendly phrase back. It's funny, in the 50s, there were actually quite a few gay bars in this neighborhood. Very conservative mayor Robert Wagner then stepped in, and there were a lot of busts. Um, And at one point in 1960, all the bars were closed but one. 
And Wagner had his own reasons for wanting to close them down, too. Most notably, I think, the 1964 World's Fair, right? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, he wanted to clean up the whole city. Then, when you, you know, had the world coming to New York, he didn't want a bunch of... You can't you know, have these sleazy, you know, what they considered sleazy places with all these degenerates running around. And he needed to be a clean, wholesome city, which was an impossible thing to do for New York at any time. But certainly then... Right. There were early gay rights organizations, but they were very, very formative at this time and definitely fighting up wind. In 1963, there was the very first gay protest in New York. It was called the New York League of Sexual Freedom, and they picketed the Whitehall Induction Center to protest some military policies. The Mattachine Society then comes along in New York. This is actually a San Francisco group that formed in the 50s. The founder of the Mattachine Society, his name was Henry Hay, he named the group after a medieval music and dance troupe. And they all wore masks. Oh, that, that. <laughs> and they danced around from city to city, and they wore these masks. And you know, his he believed that the gays wore masks also. So that uh-huh. was like the and, you know the the hom- poetic. It was theatrical. The homosexuals, but I shouldn't say homosexuals. The term that they used was homophile. Right, which is so a word not we would use today ever. But back then, that was the more preferred phrase. Right. was homophile. So anyway, New York got its own branch of the Mattachine Society in 1961. Mattachine did succeed in lobbying and getting some of this police entrapment to stop, and they were helped by a little bit more of a liberal mayor, John Lindsay, who then came in. Some of these crackdowns were beginning to stop, but there was so much work to still be done. And the Medicines were smart, too. They were media savvy, and they formed relationships with journalists as well. So when entrapment would occur, many times you'd have men who were arrested call the Medicine offices, and they would set them up with an attorney or call the New York Post, which we know was a liberal paper at the time. Uh And get a little press coverage on this because Lindsay was saying that entrapment didn't even exist. And luckily, they were able to kind of seg into all these other... I mean, this is the late 60s. It's now Mm. radical protest movements are happening everywhere, even up in Columbia. As a matter of fact, in 1967, Columbia University forms its own student homophile league. However, Stonewall, believe it or not, will be the tinderbox for a lot of the movement and momentum that they're trying to muster up. But Stonewall, if you will give us a little bit of an inside walking tour of it, is really not much to write home about and kind of an unlikely candidate for such a liberation movement. Well, the Stonewall was, by this point, it was a pretty well-known bar. Some have said that even before the riots, it was the most famous gay bar in New York— That isn't to say that it was the most beloved gay bar, but everybody everybody knew the Stonewall. Sure. Anyway, so say you walk, let's walk inside the Stonewall and have a drink, shall we? We shall. So we're on Christopher Street. We walk in. The door has a small window in it so that the bouncer can look out and see who you are. You enter. You say hi to the bouncer. Now, it's a private club, Greg. It's a dining club. Uh This is not a bar, remember? Because... Bars can't get licenses this, if they but, sell. But this is how they did it. Gays. But this is how they did it. It was a private club, right? It was a private club. So you'd sign the little book when you walk in. You could sign your name, Mickey Mouse, or whatever you wish. On the left, you hang up your coat and your hat. Walk into the bar, and on in the front room, there's a bar on the right side. There's a dance floor behind that, and that's sort of like the mainstream dance floor mm-hmm. where most of the clients from the front of the room, the more conservative types, would hang out. If you walk through the bathrooms or through a side door, you'd get into the back dance floor, which was more popular with younger kids, some of the street kids who would okay. hang out there. 
and it had its own bar. And I think that more illicit things were happening in that room. I think so, too. Yeah, I think so, too. Some drugs, some prostitution, some things like that. All manner of, of debauchery. So you had two dance floors, two different rooms, two different bars. Nothing extraordinary about it on the surface. As you said before, this was illegal, what was happening uh-huh. here. So the bar would get raided sometimes by the police. Now, a typical raid, because of other connections that the bar had with the police, would occur during very convenient times for the bar. <laughs> That's nice. A raid would happen, say, before the bar even opened or early on in the evening before it became packed. And oftentimes the police would come in, check IDs, kind of, you know, scare people a little bit, let people go. And then the bar would go ahead and reopen right away. The barkeep knew when the police were coming in, they'd flash on the lights so that white lights would turn on, which is frightening in any bar, gay or straight. But it sounds like it sort of it became routine that you you go out and you may expect the bar to like be raided once, and it just might be the way it, it is. It was just another night out on the town. But Greg, I ask you, how did the bar owners know about this? How did they get off so easily? You have to think about this timing. Even think about the 20th century nightlife scene in New York. Who is in control of the bars? Who controls, you know, who controlled all the, the, during Prohibition? Who controls the bars in the 40s and 50s? And who controls the gay bars now? It's the mafia. Wait, now? In the 60s. And now is in the world that we're in right now in the podcast. Oh, gotcha. Okay, I mean, there may be some now in in the city at this very moment. Sex in the City can deal with that. But I am dealing with Stonewall here in the late 60s. Thank you. The mafia wasn't really looking out for the gay scene. They were just using them because they could make money. They charged really high entrance fees. They watered down all the liquor. Many of these bars were not safe places to be. The mafia distrusted and looked down upon their own clientele. And of course, as you infer, they're open to police corruption. And because of that, the clientele had, had little legal retaliation if anything were to ever happen into any of these bars. But this strikes us today as kind of an unusual concept, doesn't it? That the mob was running gay bars? But not only were they, they they weren't just running it, they were keeping the whole thing alive. As a matter of fact, I read a a one quote that said, our only hope lies in corruption. Like like these gay bars wouldn't be open because the mafia were really the only ones that were operating the places and making any kind of income off of it. What I'm basically trying to say is the mafia was no friend of the gay scene. They were using the gay scene, but the gay scene had no choice Mm. in the matter. And the gay clients had a lot of money to spend on watered-down drinks that they couldn't get anywhere else. And um, Now, Stonewall is also a mafia-run place. It was run by a young mafioso whose name was Tony Loria, who actually went by the name Fat Tony. Mm Mm-hmm. Fat Tony's father was also in the mafia, and in fact, they owned a building just down the street at Waverly Place and 6th Avenue. Fat Tony made the Stonewall like a bottle club, you know, private club, as you said. The profits, believe it or not, would actually make themselves all the way up to Matthew Iniello. I'm sorry to say that slowly, also known as Matty the Horse. He was a member of the Genovese family and was basically put in charge of the West Village area. So he got to cut off the profits of all of the uh, money that was going into Stonewall. Stonewall also had a much more notorious manager, and his name was Ed Murphy. Not to be confused with the comedian Eddie Murphy. <laughs> Ed Murphy, well, why don't we just call, keep, we'll call him by his, his nickname, The Skull. Let's just say people he disagreed with would disappear. He used Stonewall as a way to actually extort money from people. You know, they even claimed that he kept card information of some of the clientele at the door. 
most severely, you know, a lot of these men were closeted with families and worked on Wall Street, and those were the ones that he targeted specifically. They would sign their name, be seen there. There might even be some photographic evidence. He could use all of this to extort money from them. So one could say that not only was money coming from the watered-down drinks, but also from extortion. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, no one, no one has the receipts, box office receipts, <laughs> if you will. But you know, he probably made a lot of money off of that. And I mean, he was such a scoundrel, the skull. He even had information on J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI. Right. And I guess today it's known that J. Edgar Hoover was also cross-dressing and into some of these other alternative scenes himself. Alternative lifestyles, we can say. But this explains then why the FBI wouldn't be stepping up and investigating the mob police connection sure, and would yeah. be staying out of the whole thing. J. Edgar Hoover at the same time would go on the record nationally and say that there was no mob, that the mafia was sort of a delusion and an invention of the popular culture. And now we know why he said that. Well, now we know. So this all basically sets up the sort of a fateful events that happen the last weekend of June 1969. Correct. And we'll have more on the Stonewall Riots after this. And now, back to the Stonewall Inn. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. How did the police chief in this particular case, whose name was Seymour Pine... Right, Seymour Pine was the deputy inspector who was in charge of the plan to shut down Stonewall. Now, he had raided other clubs as well. You know, the, the big event that we talk about happened on Friday night, yes. June 27th, or early in the morning on June 28th, 1969. Yes. Earlier that same week, he had raided the stone wall and closed it down, but sort of inconsequentially, you know, was shut down just temporarily. And like the one, of these, right, there's one, of, one of these routine shutdowns that we've talked about earlier. And I believe that the skull looked up at him and said something like, I'll be open tomorrow, <laughs> you know, rubbing it in yeah, his sure, face right. that he just couldn't shut this place down. So Pine put together a team and put together a plan. So that night on Friday, June 27th, they met in his office, and it was, what, Pine and seven undercover officers. They dispatched two female undercover agents to go to the Stonewall and to 
enter, which they did, and to sort of get inside the club and see what was going on and also take note of what bartenders were serving, the illicit alcohol that they weren't allowed Uh to serve, who was drinking, and also take note of the transvestites because, remember, it was against the law for men or women to wear, what, more than three pieces of clothing that were not gender-appropriate? Yeah, gender-appropriate clothes, basically. You had to wear a certain number of them. Speaking of clothes, all the policemen were in plain clothes. Right. Obviously, they weren't in they weren't in their uniforms. So the police women went inside. Pine and his officers were waiting out front in Christopher Park, but they never got a signal from them. They kept waiting and waiting, and the women never came out. So they just decided, well, we'll just go ahead and go in. And this is also amazing. I have to say that these guys just go inside. They saw all of these people go in because the Stonewall was crowded, of course. It was a Friday night. It was packed. They just assumed that because it was a gay club, there wasn't going to be any problem. They could go in and bust a club like they had busted so many before, and there wouldn't be really a great resistance to them because what are the gays going to do? They're going to like stand up and make a fuss and get arrested and go through the hassle or get publicly like they humiliated? Cert- they, weren't, they weren't expecting any uh, confrontations at all. It hadn't happened before. So they, the cops went inside. They closed the bar. The lights went up. 1.20 a.m. 1.20 a.m. on Saturday morning. They begin to gather people and they begin to arrest people. But the first signs of conflict, believe it or not, Tom, ha- actually happened with a couple transvestites who were, I mean, everyone was in the throes of like having a great time and a couple transvestites, they didn't want to go. So they were, they were pulled aside and they were arrested, but they were screaming at the cops and everything. What you realize is it's, it starts with these little things and just builds and builds. The police were letting most of the people go. You know, they were checking IDs, which terrified some people because who knows what they were going to do with that information. But they were letting most of the people out and pushing them out of the club once they checked their IDs. But the transvestites were stuck inside and getting searched by the police because they had to be searched. They had to prove that they were of the gender that they were dressing (laughs) for. Right, right. And and clearly they were not. Right. And they even had, you know, those same undercover women, that is to say, the undercover police women. (laughs) As opposed to, right, right, gotcha. Checking out or offering to be in the ladies' room to check out the transvestites to check for gender, to make sure that they were appropriate. Now, most most of the transvestites would say, forget it, okay, I'm a guy, whatever, I'm wearing women's clothing, before they got to that sort of level of humiliation. But still, that's kind of, that's that's horrifying. So what was interesting though is as that was happening inside those who were allowed to leave they didn't necessarily leave like they left the bar but they all started congregating outside the timing was really wrong on pines part because around like 1 1 30 it's prime bar time other people were coming out of other bars so they could gather and gawk and all of a sudden they had this huge scene in front of the stonewall bar which they had were not prepared for and they weren't anticipating because i mean again they were expecting people to to basically thank them and say thank you for letting me go and yeah, race off into the night never to be seen again but there were these rumors that the, that the people that were inside the club were being arrested and then getting beat up by the police so there was this animosity and they were the crowd started to get a little vicious and they were many of them were drunk anyway some of them wanted to get back in to check on their friends they were sick of this abuse that they were getting from the cops as people were leaving you know people that were like not being arrested it got kind of crazy and like people would leave and like the audience would applaud i mean the the crowd would applaud and like 
like right, people would like to do a show. You some know. drag queens, I guess, that were being allowed out would, you know, sort of take a curtsy or a smile at the police officers and say, well, hello, officer. You know, things like that, working the crowd a little bit more and more. And there, there was, as you can tell, there was a certain lightness in the air until, kind of until the paddy wagons pull up. Then all of a sudden, this seriousness hits the crowd of like, oh, are oh, people really getting arrested? Really, this is happening. So they load up the paddy wagons with some of the mafia members, some of the bartenders. Then the three transvestites came out, and you know, it's, there was still some like some laughter. Because, you know, there was someone even yelled out at the crowd, "Oh, I'm glad they're taking her. She needs a rest." Oh no, they didn't. But it's, it's soon there, soon thereafter, some of the first violence outside happened. A cop sh- starts shoving one of these transvestites, and then like she hits him back with the purse. Now that seems kind of funny, but all, all of a sudden you're seeing this sort of violent activity, and you're just sort of like sitting outside waiting. It's very it, tense. Yeah, at that point, there were a couple of people who started throwing coins. This was a symbolic gesture as well, because it was, of course, mocking the mafia's tie to paying off the police. So you had a crowd who started throwing coins at the police. And then we hit a part of the story that is perhaps legend, or it's been documented, but there was a very butch lesbian who was pushed out. She's considered the real linchpin to all the violence that would soon happen later. No one really knows who she is, but they would just... just and the reason they could describe her in, in so maybe as a butch lesbian is because she was wearing manly clothes. Not dressed gender appropriate. It was believed that she was arrested for not wearing those three pieces of appropriate clothing. But she's thrashing around with the cops, and she's not taking it, and she's screaming. And she actually escapes out of the police car like, right, two or three they times. they pushed her into the police car, and she popped right back out to a roar of approval from the crowd. Well, it's something about what her, something about her really the crowd just got behind. By this time, the cops are actually grabbing people off the street and pulling them inside the club. The cops are actually, you know, strangely enough, trapped inside of Stonewall and can't leave. One of the people that they pulled in, believe it or not, was a heterosexual folk singer who was next door at the Lion's Head, who popped out to see what was going on. His name was uh, Dave Van Ronk. He was hit and then pulled inside and handcuffed inside the club. The police, with Dave and some others, were basically back into the uh, Stonewall. The Stonewall became their fortress, ironically. And they shut the door and they barricaded themselves in to, you know, protect themselves from the mob outside. At the same time, a parking meter was ripped up from the street and was actually being used to ram against the door by the rioters to get inside at the police. There was yeah, firelit bottles were being like sent into the building. I mean, it was it was getting people really actually dangerous. went up in those plywood coverings, co- you know, covering the the windows outside. They were trying to light those on fire, making Molotov cocktails, throwing them when they succeeded in making a hole in the door, throwing them inside. They tried to burn down the stone wall with the police inside. By, by this time, though, you have to remember, on top of the original crowd, you now have a lot of the the homeless youth that were in the park. You have a lot of non-gay people who are there. You have, you have an incredible collection of people at this time, not just the original people. It's completely chaotic, completely out of control, and hundreds of people. And Pine has been radioing the police headquarters to get backup because they never expected it to turn out this way, trying to get other officers to back them up and to basically get the riot under control. 
Finally, one of those female undercover cops managed to sneak out an upstairs window, jump across the rooftops, and basically call to the precinct and get some backup and also to the fire department to get some engines Right, and in. so then this here comes the, the six precinct police and the tactical police force, the riot police, if you will, and they basically pried the crowd from the entrance of the club so that everyone could escape. And it's amazing. I mean, the tactical patrol forces were this group that were specially trained to counter Vietnam protesters. Never in their wildest dreams had they thought that they would be combating a group of protesting homosexuals. And here you were, I mean, they were like, you were getting in these like individual battles with swinging nightsticks against transvestites in this like, all their, in their riot gear, like trying to clear the street as they were walking. But then all these street kids would just run around the block because the West Village is so chopped up and strange. I mean, they could run up 7th Avenue, they could go on West 10th, they could come down Waverly, they could hang a right on Christopher, go up Gay Street, walk down Grove Street. I mean, there were all of these corners and weird little angles. Now, on top of all of this, then... Well, they, the, you have the line dancers. So the, Probably the most fabulous part of this whole story. So the riot police are, you know, with their shields, are, are coming forward. And then you have lines of young, gay flaming homosexual men doing a high kick doing like a like a chorusing a rockette as a tribute to the rockettes and they're singing this song called we are the stonewall girls you, would you like to sing it for us tom i, I can hum the melody thing. <laughs> do you know the melody we are the stonewall girls we wear our hair in curls we wear our dungarees above our nelly knees <laughs> Um, Stick wow. to my day job? Uh, no, I think you should go out and record that. But anyway, so this is the so and there were other verses too. That this were a very bit absurd more... thing was going on that of just a weird mix of seriousness, some lightness, and so eventually. But something about seeing street kids, you know, arm in arm and kicking in the face of riot police who had broken up Vietnam protests, singing a song and taking on a rockette's kick line is so glorious, you know? It's, Gutsy. What? That's pride, folks. <laughs> the riot continued late into the night. There would be 13 arrests, uh, four police injured, according to some 400 police present, and it didn't stop there. No, it didn't. The uh, Because people would come, they, people who had heard about it would then come back the next night. So then Saturday, Sunday night, and then even as far as Wednesday night, there were still crowds of hundreds of people who would show up. The crowds would be a little different, though, because this would be people who were straight supporters, um, other kinds of radical non-gay supporters. Uh, the Manichean Society was even there handing out literature because now it was sort of a gay event if you will. People were chanting gay power, uh, you know, trash cans were being set on fire, thousands of people chanting, filling the street, stopping traffic. But then the, the riots kept going on until several days afterwards, uh, during the evenings. But luckily, forming and like really having for the first time a large group of gay people out in public at once, it sparked all this gay activism, all this excitement now for actually like pulling themselves together. It's amazing to think today, I think we take it for granted, but this was a group that had never seen its power in numbers represented. So I think that they were probably pretty shocked to see each other and see the mass together and see the power that was there. So one of the first groups that formed from this were called the Gay Liberation Front. 
it wouldn't stay together that long, but other groups would come from that. And the, it basically started this ball rolling. And you also have to keep in mind that all this is happening late 60s, early 70s. And there's this real desire to not take oppression any further or, or to take your situation and compare it to others and realize, well, I want that. I want to be able to do the things that that person is doing. I want to be able to be myself. Now, Stonewall Raid and the Stonewall Riots certainly got people mobilized and seeing each other. But later on that same year, there'd be another raid. It wasn't like the raid stopped on the gay clubs. They were on their way down, but they hadn't stopped. Including another notable raid at the Snake Pit. Uh, Notable because they brought in a lot of gay men to the police station. A lot of people had been arrested. And one man was there, and he panicked. He did not understand that they were about to be released and that they weren't going to be arrested. He didn't have his green card. Right. He, did, he, didn't, he didn't speak English very well, but he, he panicked. He ran up to the roof of the building and jumped. Well, he was trying to get to another building, but then fell, and he ended up getting impaled on a fence. And as, dis- as disturbing as that is, what hap- they took pictures. The pictures were in the papers the next day. And this was sort of the... Well, this also shows the, the media savvy of the Gay Liberation Front because they had connections with the New York Post and they got newspapers in there as quickly as possible to photograph this tragedy to raise the public awareness, which was a major hit point. And so amazingly, just a few months later, on the anniversary of Stonewall, on June 28th, 1970, just a year later, so much was being done in terms of gay activism and creating a community that they actually had the very first gay pride parade a year after the Stonewall riots. They called this Christopher Street Liberation Day Parade, and it was from Sheridan Square up to Central Park. It was the first real mass gathering of gay people in New York City, People, and also people from up and down the East Coast. Up to 2,000 people marched in 1970. It was 15 blocks long. And when they started out, they were afraid for their own lives and for their own safety, thinking that people might throw things at them. They were told by the police to, you know, not wear any jewelry or anything because they could be attacked and they could be robbed. But essentially, it just flummoxed New York. People just stood around in sort of like complete awe and shock. And as they marched north, more and more people joined in the march, realizing that this was a group, again, seeing strength in numbers. I mean, you you can basically see the gay liberation movement started on this day. Though, of course, you wouldn't have had this day if it wasn't for those wild, chaotic Stonewall riots. And if you can think about that moment in Central Park when the group arrived at Sheep's Meadow on top of the hill, looked around and saw thousands of people who had joined the movement as they marched north, this was an incredible sight and incredible feeling for this group, the first parade. Stonewall, the bar, however, wouldn't live to see this parade, believe it or not. It was closed three months after the riot. It was so notorious. It couldn't stay open. It was a mafia-run place. And gay groups even boycotted it because of the mafia influence. And they could do so now because they actually had the power to do it. So through the 70s and through the 80s, it it was a Chinese restaurant. um, It was a shoe store. However, it did reopen in the early 90s, just or at least rather just the west section of it just opened, and to become a bar, back to the Stonewall, it was a gay bar, and two floors in the late 90s. Now it's just kind of a normal place. Like, you wouldn't really see it and be like, wow, this is a place of, like, mass historical importance here. But, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing some a little bit more of, like, a dazzling reinvention, but maybe it's nice that it's just sort of a normal bar. And we should add that it's no longer controlled by the mafia. 
No, no. And by the way, we should dispel. You probably say, "Well, when I hear about Stonewall, I heard I right, hear that it's the famous. I hear it's Judy because Garland. I heard it's the because the gays were all upset about Judy Garland dying, and it's true. She her funeral was that day. I'm sure that there were some distraught people. Well, there were even some people who had attended her funeral or who had stopped by who may have had it on their mind that night, but were those the people who really got this thing going? Well, those weren't the rioters. Young gay homeless youth probably weren't listening to Judy Garland. Whether they liked her or not, we who can say? But that wasn't, that was not the, it, it was more of a symbolic thing, I guess. Older gay men at this time, or like the adult gay men, listened to Judy Garland. And I'm sure that that was, it was sort of a symbolic type of thing. Like Judy Garland died, and this old way of thinking about being gay has also died. Finally, we should add that on top of our own um, New York City Gay Pride Parade, which happens at the end of June, that every borough has a gay pride parade on each week of June. I'm not, we don't have the list right in front of us. But Throughout the, June, it's celebrated. But almost more weekends. interestingly, there's this thing called the Christopher Day Celebration that happens in Europe in over 30, 40 cities. So that's our look at, at the Stonewall riots and their effects and the context in which they happened. We pulled from a lot of sources on this particular one, but we tried something a little different. We both, we both read the same book this week. And we usually challenge each other with different right. sources. We just, because there's this really defining history on Stonewall called Stonewall by and David Carter. And you should Carter. see us, listener. We're both holding this book right now next to no, each other. No, I mean, other. it was a very good, it's a very good sort of journalistic approach, and it's by David Carter. It's called Stonewall. If you want um, a, a lot of the good, gritty detail, it's a good book to read. But there's a lot of other books. I mean, there's also a movie, a fictionalized movie about Stonewall. But what I like so much about Carter's book is that he, you know, so many of these events were up for debate or because they weren't being captured by cameras. How the riot unfolded is different depending on who you talk to. And he talks to so many people and he reconstructs it and shows you opposing points of view. To have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you next week. And so that was our show from May of 2008 on the history of the Stonewall riots and the birth of the gay movement in New York City. We abruptly stopped that show in the 1970s, pretty much. You know, it was like, and then the gays and lesbians formed organizations, and everything was okay. And, and right, and then there were gay pride parades and Christopher Street parades in Europe. But we sort of jumped over some really important events and milestones and tragedies that affected the gay community and also the Stonewall Inn. How the events of Stonewall not happened when they did. Had people not come together, you know, in the aftermath of the Stonewall riots and they're on the streets in front of Stonewall and in these like pro-gay political meetups and gatherings and, you know, eventually in the parade, had none of this happened when it did, I think that what, what came next in the 1980s would have been far, far worse. Now, there had been reports of people dying in places around the world in the 1970s of an unknown illness that would manifest into a crisis by the start of the year 1980. Gay men, particularly in New York and in San Francisco, reported a, a sort of pneumonia, which proved fatal, soon causing an epidemic, which was originally called GRID, G-R-I-D, Gay-Related Immune Deficiency. Two years later, in 1982, it would be renamed AIDS, the Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome. 
That was 1982 when it was renamed AIDS? Yes. By this point, it was a full-blown epidemic, a serious health crisis. However, local and state levels of government were relatively slow to respond. And on the federal level, of course, it was quite severely and dangerously slow to respond to the crisis. There were two groups on the front line in the early days of the AIDS epidemic, of the AIDS crisis. One, there were the doctors, nurses, and the researchers, a significant number of them from New York hospitals. Including St. Vincent's Hospital, just a few blocks north along 7th Avenue. Yeah, a few blocks north of Stonewall, right. Right. The other group, which of course immediately responded, were the gay activists and writers and the whole activist infrastructure, which had developed in the aftermath of Stonewall. These people relentlessly pushed the story out of the shadows. I'd even say that the modern gay community was formed in these years as caregivers for those who were dying of AIDS, for these political voices, for those people who were out there instilling this aspect, this thing that we call gay pride today. Mm -hmm. So then all this sadness and this tragedy was hitting a community that had been mobilized in a way because of the Stonewall riots. Right. Well, the, the political energy that had been created by Stonewall grafted itself into organizations that became like ACT UP, for instance, and also grafted itself into the New York's art scene. So this force of people banding together to push back against this illness and raise awareness of this illness were joined by the medical community who listened to these people before anyone else. And then eventually, finally, they were able to make inroads politically into mainstream politics and working to educate people in destigmatizing those with the illness. And all of this, I think, traces itself back to Stonewall. Our defense against this, our consolidation, began here at Stonewall. It's really strange talking about this. Maybe this is part of the reason we didn't spend too much time on it in the Stonewall show nine years ago. We knew people who died of AIDS in Mm -hmm. the 1990s. It was a specter for me and for you and for many people who moved to New York and came out and clumsily tried to find themselves back during this period. You know, when I moved here permanently in 1993, I moved into an apartment of someone who had just died of AIDS. Someone who had been faced with the most hideous behavior and was ostracized by his family. I certainly didn't realize back then how important Stonewall had been, even though by 1990, Stonewall the bar had actually reopened. You know, it was closed for a very long period of time. Right. And then they reopened the Western portion of it and they called it Stonewall. Right. Yeah. I should say, by the way, that that the original Stonewall was two buildings. Today, Mm -hmm. the, the sort of the eastern side of the building is a nail salon. Right. But, but it's not. The The other side is also where the original Stonewall was, and that's where the present bar is. But back to the 1990s, we were aware of the name Stonewall because it was a bar, and mm-hmm. we knew that something happened there, but there were... There were Events that took place outside it. There was the AIDS quilt that came through New York City. Right. For many people, it did become a tourist attraction around 1992, or rather Christopher Park in front of it did. For that was when Mayor David Dinkins helped unveil statues of four figures, two men, two women, looking like they're made of plaster. This sculpture is called Gay Liberation by George Siegel. 
Believe it or not, it had actually been commissioned as far back as 1979, but this was seen as kind of controversial Mm -hmm. uh, in those days. But by 1992, it was seen as kind of an essential symbol of the community at this time. A, A community that was still very much being affected by AIDS in 1992. The crazy thing is today, in in light of recent events with Stonewall, these I mean these statues are still there. They appear in probably a trillion selfies now. Like they really have become a little bit of a tourist attraction in themselves. I also wanted to mention in 1994 was Stonewall 25, which was a huge celebration of the anniversary of the Stonewall riots and and brought it to prominence for a lot of people who weren't aware of the story. And weren't we even there, Greg? I think partying in the streets. That's the amazing thing. I had kind of forgotten that until until researching this, that, you know, I had only lived in New York just a few months, as had you. And we were in that parade with your sister. And in fact, we even held that mile long rainbow flag, which was designed by Gilbert Baker, who was the original inventor of the rainbow flag. And there we were in front of Stonewall. Now, this is going to get a little technical here, but that bar was called Stonewall. Mm -hmm. That bar closed in 2006. Okay, it kind of went downhill at the end. Mm -hmm. It reopened the next year, 2007, redeveloped, also kind of like re-embracing its historic past and its legacy. Um, But it reopened in 2007, renamed the Stonewall Inn, which is, of course, its original name. Mm -hmm. So that is the bar that still operates today. Mm -hmm. And when you walk in, you'll see um, a sign, you know, by the door, which is a poignant reminder from the days of the raid from 1969. Uh, There's a sign that says, this is a raided premises. But by 2006, 2007, hadn't it already gained a sort of national prominence? Yes, and that was because of a lot of work uh, done by local preservationists, um, including the Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation, who in 1999 succeeded in getting the bar in the area, actually, the the park, Christopher Park, uh, the street in front of it, and the building listed as a national historic place. And the next year, in 2000, those things were then designated a National Historic Landmark and making them the first landmark, national landmark, to be dedicated to something of LGBT importance, prominence, history. And it would be 15 years later, in June of 2015, that the Stonewall Inn became a New York City landmark. Again, the first city landmark to be recognized for its role in LGBT history. And this helped create a case pushed by preservationists and local politicians and neighborhood residents that it deserved to have even more national status. And so the very next year, in June of 2016, in the final year of the Obama administration, this became the Stonewall National Monument, the first national monument dedicated to LGBTQ rights. And, the, and here the word monument is a little bit confusing. You know, it's not like you're going over and seeing a sculpture that represents the actual monument. The monument here is the bar and the street and the park, the, the area. And I would say that the street and the park, which of course contains statues, is of critical historical importance, even more so than, say, just the bar itself, because, of course, this is where the the gay rights movement really developed, was out here in the streets. 
Right. And as you mentioned in a blog post that you wrote on our blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com, last year when this happened, mm-hmm. you wrote, quote, but perhaps the most unusual aspect to the National Park Service's newest acquisition is that Stonewall Inn is still very much an active bar, even more so now for its fame. Its big gay happy hours are but one of the many things that sets this NPS site apart from, say, Grant's tomb. (laughs) I mean, that's true. It also brings up a question that I, I, I still have. Will there be a park ranger at the National Monument? Because, I mean, you can really visualize, you know, who and who this person is and and what they might look like. Okay. (laughs) That is the shallowest thing you've said in this entire episode, and we're just going to let it hang there. Okay. But seriously, Greg, this monument is more important and in many ways more relevant than ever. It is here to this site that the gay community has rallied, has come to gather to celebrate um, and also to mourn together on the streets outside Stonewall and also inside at the bar at Stonewall, historic pieces of legislation were witnessed and celebrated. And, you know, I mean, I I actually sat there for several of those uh, verdicts to be read, leaning up against the bar <laughs> um, inside and then afterwards uh, celebrating with you in the streets. You were even on national television once, which was kind of amusing, seeing you with the beer at like 11 in the morning or something. It was research. <laughs> I knew we'd eventually be talking about it, and here we are. Yes, that was on, I think, one day um, I appeared in the background on CNN and also MSNBC. But that particular day, I believe, was in June of 2013, as we awaited the verdict of the U.S. versus Windsor case at the Supreme Court. Windsor won, of course, uh, leading to the overturning of the Defense of Marriage Act. Two years later, in Obergefell versus Hodges, um, when the Supreme Court voted to legalize same-sex marriage in the United States, making it, making gay marriage the law of the land. And there were many other great rallies with great speeches by prominent officials that took place right outside the Stonewall, always right outside the Stonewall. But it's also been a place uh, where we have gathered in sadness, including to commemorate, uh, to seek solace after the Pulse nightclub murders uh, in June of 2016. In fact, just a few days ago, on Monday night, June 12th, 2017, thousands of people again gathered in the streets to pay tribute to those who were killed in that tragedy. Really, there's only one place still today that makes sense to go to, uh, to gather in moments of jubilation or in sorrow for the, for the LGBT community in New York City, and that place is Stonewall. And I would say that that is something that has only become more important and stronger in the nine years since we recorded our first Stonewall show in 2008. So for more on this, for photos of the Stonewall riots of 1969 and photos of rallies, moments of joy and moments of difficulty that have taken place in the streets outside Stonewall, check out our blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com. And we want to extend a hearty thank you to our supporters on Patreon.com, where... Thanks to your support, we are able to produce a new show every two weeks and give you exclusive content. So if you're on Patreon, you can actually download exclusive audio that is placed there just for you. 
So thank you so much for joining us. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. are true overwhelming power sauce of destiny yes the most legendary sauce has arrived as mcdonald's transforms into the anime world of wickdonald's the greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili mcdonald's sauce to make your 10-piece wick nuggets fries and sprite ultra powerful unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at wickdonald's ba-da-ba-ba-ba go and participate in mcdonald's for a limited time while supplies last